Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now here are three guys who take big pieces of wood and make them smaller. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. What's up, baby? It's Wood Talk number 155 for October 28th, 2013. On today's show, we're talking about belt sanders for fine woodworking, card scraper sharpening, waterstone storage, matching Baltic birch to solid birch, and respiratory protection when epoxy or using epoxy and fiberglass. But before we get to all that good stuff, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Where's that damn button? Oh, there it is. There it is. Yes, you love it. Today's show is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 150,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash woodtalk. And by Festool, helping woodworkers get better results in less time and with less mess to clean up afterwards. Visit them online at festoolusa.com. All right, so we've had a week since woodworking in America. Has anyone even gotten back in their shops yet? Yeah, I did over the weekend. Cool, I did cool. indeed. Well, I I did too. Just preparation stuff. Nothing really uh, dramatic. I've uh, really get in the shop set for veneer work, which is kind of a different beast um, from what you normally do. It's like everything seems to be on a a smaller scale. You got a little a little saw that you're going to use and like little <laughs> scalpel type tool. Uh, the whole veneering thing is like a different uh, a whole different mindset. So I'm, I'm trying to get on board with that. Shannon, you'd be very proud of me. I took my veneer saw and I filed it and sharpened it. And found, found myself going, damn, I shouldn't have fallen asleep during those times Shannon talks about saw sharpening. <laughs> <laughs> um, fortunately, it's not that hard, though, is it? No, 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 not at all. And unfortunately, a veneer saw is not quite as, uh, it, it, like sharpening it, it probably is not nearly as involved as, as some of the, the more complex things you might do on various types of uh, rip and crosscut saws. Um, it's really not a very expensive saw either. And that's that's the interesting thing that I'm finding as I'm, as I'm about to teach this whole uh, topic of veneering is while veneer can vary in price pretty widely, ultimately you can cover a big surface for a fairly small amount of money. But the, the tools that you need to do the job of veneering, assuming you're not going to go into vacuum veneering, is actually not very expensive. You know, like a, a decent veneer saw is like 13 bucks. Yeah. yeah, you know, and it's funny that you say that because I have one and I remember thinking it was so inexpensive mm-hmm. that I must be buying something that is just complete crap. Yeah, yeah. The two, well, <laughs> the, two, the two cherries version and they make good stuff. Theirs is like $13. So, uh, you know, it's got to be pretty decent. Uh, but yeah, ultimately, very simple tooling, very straightforward stuff. I can't wait to get into it. And I've got these beautiful veneers just waiting for me to ruin them. Right, and you said those are the ones that you picked up from Joe Woodworker? Yeah, from uh, veneersupplies.com, which is uh, so great. So you made a point earlier of saying as long as you don't get into vacuum veneering, yeah. it's not expensive. So I haven't actually gone down that road. What does it cost if you get into vacuum veneering? I mean, what is it? The bag and the pump? I mean, is that what ends up costing money? Yeah, well, basically, you've got to get the pump, and there are lower-cost ways to do that. Like, I found a pump at uh, was like Granger, I think, years yeah, and years well, ago. That's skateboard project with the little hand pump thing. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah, well, this one plugs into the wall, and uh, it actually was... Mine a, hangs on the wall. Yeah, it's Whatever. Like, <laughs> plugs. Plugs <laughs> yeah. are stupid. They're overrated. Uh, yeah, so this one was like a continuous duty pump that you just kind of... Duty. <laughs> you just can't let that go by. The worst part was is I only heard it the the this the second way. time. I didn't hear it the D U T Y way. Okay. Yeah, so like, it's what a, is continuous duty pump? Yeah, continuous duty. And uh I have had that it's after some Mexican food that I got up down the road. Oh my gosh. Yeah, nothing worse than continuous duty. 
So yes, this one plugs into the wall and it's actually 220 and that's what made the one that I got um, such a bargain. It wasn't that uh, expensive, I guess, because most people don't have easy access to 220. So you just wire it up, you put a couple little attachments on there, hook up the hose and Joe Woodworker dot com i think it is uh has all the instructions for making your own bags making the connections all the materials you need and you could even build your own pump uh, using a, a compressor i believe so so there's a lot of well, ways you could do it i guess that was my my uh perception if you will that it was mm-hmm. kind of a diy type thing it can um, be it can be uh, like anything else like like a lathe for some folks if you want to build your own <laughs> you probably can but um yeah so he's got some really good really at this point designs that have been out there for a long time and folks have been making them improving on them and he's got all the materials there to build your own now, i never did that i just found this pump for like 125 bucks and, and bought it and it's worked great for me so once you get the pump situation figured out then you've got to make the the vacuum press itself so you could buy pre-made uh, bags. You've got like vinyl bags, poly bags. Then you've got mesh for the interior and a big platen. Um, so there's a lot more work involved in it, but it is really a one-time cost because you buy a good size bag and you could veneer just about anything in a good, you know, three by six or four by eight bag. So, so right. the the initial outset, you know, you probably have a little bit more to invest, but you could still go that DIY route and make it fairly inexpensive. Um, there are several companies out there that make sort of the all-in-one kind of like vacuum press systems and stuff like that. I've never really looked into the pricing on those, but I imagine they're not they're not super cheap. Um, but if someone wanted a, a you know all-in-one solution, you could certainly do that. So, cool. but I'm not going to do that on this particular project. I'm actually going. Uh, yeah, it's a small project. It's a box. We don't need to pull out the vacuum press for this. Uh, although if no one was looking, I totally would. <laughs> right. <I'm just> gonna... <laughs> <laughs> like, why wouldn't I? Um, well, I just know I when I was in college, <laughs> I worked at one of those um, Prince Plus places, you know, where you mm-hmm. go and get the cheap vinyl frames. Yeah. And we had a big old flatbed vacuum press that we would glue the the prints down to poster board. Yeah. And when no one was looking, we would just vacuum press things for the hell of it. Because nice. it's fun, you know. Atmospheric pressure is is a powerful thing. Um, yeah, so so uh, that's going to be something fun. And we're going to grab some plywood and some clamps, make a bunch of calls, and just make a, a homemade press that I think will be good for small to medium-sized projects. Uh, so that'll be coming up soon. That's Matt, cool. very nice. How about you, Matt? Well, the big thing for me is uh, the first full weekend back from the conference, of course, I was still kind of brimming with a whole bunch of excitement from it. And one of the things I ended up doing was heading downstairs and continuing working on Aiden's bed. I've, I've, got, a, I've got a time limit that I've given myself that I want 90% of this finished by. Originally, I said 100. Now I'm going to be satisfied with 90% because <laughs> things just happen as you go along. Uh, but I ended up working on the legs for the bed itself. And one thing I wanted to do is I've got a kind of a double taper on this, uh, double taper in the sense that one's on one side, one's on the other, not like you know coming down to a, a V or anything. Anyways, though, uh, I decided to – I wanted to break out that micro jig, micro dial taper jig. I haven't had a chance to really use it. It's been sitting here. I keep thinking it reminds me of a battleship from like G.I. Joe or something. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, it, it, I wanted to have an opportunity to use it. And it turns out that the degree of angle for these tapers is way too steep even for this. Really? So, yeah. So I'm like, well, hmm, that's not so bad. I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty steep angle. I can get that. The other issue I ran into, more importantly, though, is even if the angle would work for the, uh, the micro dial, I actually found that my blanks for the legs are like three and a half inches tall and it exceeds the height of my table saw. <laughs> so 
I end up having to turn to my bandsaw. And that's no problem. I mean, I've done it before. It's really easy to do. And the one thing I was thinking is I'm like, all right, I want to get this as close to that line and see how steady I can get this. Mm -hmm. Because we attended, uh, Mark, you and I went into Iger's class on the shaping, the curves. Oh, the guy with the overalls. Yes, yes, okay. yeah, and I believe that's when you you finally got your best score on Plants vs Zombies while we were in there. <laughs> Shut up, um, Matt. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Don't give uh, away my secrets. <laughs> just kind of kidding on that one. But anyways, <laughs> though, so I was watching him up there as he was doing his his work, and oftentimes when I turn to the bandsaw, um, I, I I really kind of do a lot of rough work on it, and then completely go over and refine either on a, a router with a pattern or uh, over at, say, my oscillating sander. And this time I'm like, I'm going to get as dead on close to that line as possible. I'm like, maybe even potentially split the line, Mm -hmm. but yet still have it there. So it took a few moments, a little, you know, kind of a deep swallow, and here goes nothing, and I did it. I was amazed how tight I got those, to the point where I'm almost like, I don't even think I need to refine these at all because they were so nice and right on that line so wow. it was a big one for me because i've never ever 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 felt comfortable enough to even attempt to come that close to my lines so so then once you got the taper in win. i mean are you just going to go back and hit it with a plane just to smooth it out or actually i ended up just running it over my jointer okay and i was go. able to get that because that see now that's one thing is when people see the video it's going to be like one of those well those tapers to some degree aren't exactly uniform you know there there's one maybe it's just a little bit higher than the other but here's the thing i'm i'm seeing when i put it in position is there's no way in the world you're going to see both of the tapers on that single leg simultaneously because are they both on the inside yes okay yeah so you would really have to like walk around and really super fast maybe even do like some quantum (laughs) thing where you're in both spots simultaneously yeah to really worry about it so it doesn't matter (laughs) yeah so but that that's the big thing is i I got them done and they they came out exactly the way i want them it's going to work out perfectly fine but more importantly i am now feeling so much more comfortable with my bandsaw that this almost makes me think not going to guarantee i'm going to follow through with it i almost want to do a series of projects where Everything 100% is done on the bandsaw. All my ripping, all my cross-cutting, all of that stuff, just because it really is it's, – it's an extremely versatile tool, and I'm starting to feel comfortable enough with it that I think I need to start exploiting more of what you could do with it than I have done in the past. Sure, sure. Well, I know people who've so ditched their again. table saws 100% in favor of the bandsaw, so um, it's, it can certainly be done. Yeah, it's it's it definitely. I mean, I'm getting some great. I, I did some ripping not too long ago. With, regardless of what type of fence you use or anything, or how you're going to do that ripping, uh, once I have a nice sharp blade on there, I was insanely amazed at how well the lines came out and how tight they were and how yeah. uniform it was. I mean, it's something that I can honestly say, other than I maybe pushed it through a bit, a little bit too fast, and the bandsaw marks were a little bit rough, but it was almost nearly as. Some people are going to say this is total BS, but almost nearly as de- as accurate as my table saw. Wow. You know, but usually, though, even with the table saw, I usually come back in at least with a hand plane and try and clean up those mill marks just a little bit. So, mm. I don't know. It, it worked out for me. But I, I can see that. I can see that. I, you know, at one point before I, like, knocked my bandsaw over and completely threw it out of alignment, I had it, like, <laughs> really, really well tuned up. And I had a, you know, a nice, fresh wood slicer blade in there. I'm assuming you got your new blade, in other words. Yep. <laughs> well, actually, the one I've been using is that carbide-tipped one that I somehow was like, where did this come from? It must be from the Bandsaw Blade Fairy. <laughs> no, nice. Thank you. I like, I like the Bandsaw Blade Fairy. But yeah, it was the same type of thing where I was like, wow, this thing is really accurate. And I think we've been kind of programmed to believe that 
oh, you're going to do lots of work, you know, when you cut it on a bandsaw anyway. And, you know, I think we could really challenge that. I mean, definitely it's not the same, you know, quality of cut. You're going to see those ridges that come with a saw like that. But, yeah, right. I, 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 I lived without the table saw for, uh, what, a year and a half before I finally did get rid of my bandsaw. But that's, that's all I used. And it mm-hmm. worked great. I think it's, uh, we- I think it's a great tool. Well, one thing I really like so far is uh, I, I've, I've noticed that there's – even when the blade is getting dull, I don't get that burning like I do as the blade on, say, the table saw starts getting dull or because I haven't cleaned the pitch off of the uh, the blade. Because who does that maintenance stuff? I mean, seriously. Uh, but the, the other one is if you, again – and we'll hear from people once in a while. They say they're having trouble with the blade, be it the table saw or something. And it's like one of those, yeah, but have you ever varied your feed rate? And I noticed like with the bandsaw, if I start like – feeding it through like you know i just want to rip this and get this done and over with you get a much more coarse cut on it but if you just kind of slow it down just a pinch suddenly it's like you know this isn't bad and i'm using the blade i have on there right now is uh, a three tpi so it's still rather a very coarse blade but i found that if i just slow it down you know my my feed rate i'm actually getting a really decent cut off of it to the point where it's it's hard to tell that it's from a bandsaw cool so very happy with that but anyways, though, that's that's what I've been doing. Shannon, what do you have going on here? I see you're building something other than a lathe. Oh, no, it is for the lathe. <laughs> well, a couple of things. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but Woodworking America was awesome, but it put me like ridiculously far behind on my own kind of internal production schedules mm-hmm. because just a I'm, just, I'm just a poor, poor planner overall. I had lots of time to get ahead before I went to Woodworking America, but I think I, I was probably playing Plants vs. Zombies then <laughs> instead of when I should have been getting ahead. So <laughs> right. I was back in the shop. You know, pretty much every single night, <laughs> the week after, um, and then uh, in over the weekend. So, I, I built a essentially I built a Tormek for my my treadle lathe. I bought one of those. You know, Tormek sells that little adapter that you can use the same jigs on a dry grinder. Mm-hmm. Um, I went and got that and built a little platform that goes on the outboard side of my lathe, and and I can use every single one of my Tormek jigs now. It's it's really really pretty cool actually um yeah, it's pretty it psyched and you know i can just undo a, a a little wing nut and the whole thing detaches if i wanted to do some outboard turning on there so i'm, I'm pretty psyched with how well it came out as much as i like my little hand crate grinder for chisels and things like that uh being able to get back my other hand <laughs> and just do it with my foot is uh it's, it's kind of cool but i mean it, as it is that I've had the Tormac for years and in probably the last couple of years, the only thing it ever gets used for is wood turning tools. So, um, you know, I'm certainly not going to get rid of the Tormac yet, but, uh, anybody who's used one of those things realizes how slow they can be when you have to remove a lot of steel. If you're like trying to reshape something, it's just ridiculous. It takes forever. Mm -hmm. So, um, having that dry grinder there to be able to actually move some steel is going to be kind of cool. Sweet. And then, um, I don't know, a couple months ago, you guys heard me talk about building this um, columbarium in the basement of a local church. Well, I built one and got the commission to build the rest of them, basically redo the rest of them. So I finished my third one this weekend just in time to have someone's ashes put in it. <laughs> well, I was going to say just in time for Halloween. Right, well, there's exactly. that. You know? There's yeah. that. Come and, down and, and into the crypt, children. See what Now they're complete, made. complete with uh, remains in them. So <laughs> yeah, it was a talk about meeting a deadline. That, uh, that's a good one. Yeah, that was two no, points. Two points. <laughs> All right. Well, cool. That sounds good. Uh, you want to jump into what's new? Yeah, let's do okay. it. Let's do it. Let's do it. 
What's new? Well, what's starting with new is happy birthday to Mateo. Hey, yay, Mateo. Yeah, my son's two years old already. Can you believe it? That's crazy. No. Two years. Time just flies. Oh, well. I keep telling people that he's only a year. <laughs> and uh, when he doesn't look a, a day over a year. Um, no, not at all. <laughs> so, so what do you got planned? Is it what time does the party start? Uh, well, as soon as I'm done here, pretty much. Um, I it's a big Yo Gabba Gabba party. I've got an orange jumpsuit. If you've ever seen Yo Gabba Gabba, you'll know what that means. Well, and, we saw the uh, pictures Nicole posted on the internet. So oh, yes. it's gonna be something else. Let me tell you. And we're hoping for more pictures, Nicole. More pictures. <laughs> yeah, there will after be. after the event. There definitely <laughs> will be. Uh, yeah. So we got family in from out of town. Some friends coming over. So it'll be cool, you know. And, and at two years old, he's more or less oblivious to, to everything still. Although like bright colors, yay, characters, yay. So he'll get excited, but still doesn't completely understand why all this is <laughs> why all this is happening. So oh, that's what my sixteen-year-old's the same exact way right now. <laughs> yeah, so. and it's a different. Bright it's colors. like apathy <laughs> at that point, though. You know? yeah, that's true. Very true. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So uh, well, Matt, sweet. why don't you kick off the links here? Okay, well, this first one was sent in by both Cliff and Jason, and this came in a little while ago. I know I've seen this all over Facebook, but hey, have you seen these projects which are held together with zero joinery, according to what I'm reading? Mm-hmm. They're only held together with tension, and it kind of looks like a uh, – what, what kind of bridge is that? Like a suspension bridge? Yeah, yeah. Where it's all just – and th- this is just so neat. I mean, just absolutely the, the the thinking about doing this and showing how you can easily – you know, just just play around with all these neat architectural ideas and engineering and stuff yeah. is just really super cool. Cool. And, you know, held together by tension. It kind of sounds like our show. Very much so. And actually, sometimes <laughs> people will say that about my marriage, but Sam and I just kind of, we act that way. Right. So, okay. but anyway, cool. so there, there was that one. Hey, uh, wait, who's up next? I'll oh, grab you the next one. Yeah, there's a nice video here on Vimeo. Who's, oh, Chris, that's his name, sent in this uh, video of a... It's a place, it looks like it's in Brooklyn, and essentially the idea is it's it's handmade stuff, and I think that's what Chris really wants to get across here. He says, another fine example of the resurgence of handmade, honest goods that seem to be becoming more commonly available. I love the fact that there are people out there who are creating stuff in makeshift conditions that really proves that you don't need all the fancy gear to get the job done. Um, so it's basically a couple that is working in their, they were describing that they were working in their house at one point and then they work in the front porch. We're talking about Brooklyn where you have this little stoop in the front and that's about all you've got to work with. Um, and they're making skateboards if, as a business and it's, uh, it's really taken off. So it's one of those hipstery kind of videos, um, that you see on Vimeo a lot, but really well done shows, uh, people who are out there just, just getting it done, doing it. I don't know. You know sometimes I'm, I see I'm, those videos, and I keep thinking, any minute now, Portlandia is going to like you know <laughs> pop on there, <laughs> put a bird on it. Yay! <laughs> I'm really impressed by people like this, and I I had a couple conversations like this at WIA uh, with um, actually a couple hand tool school members that I was really excited to meet because these are the apartment woodworkers. Yeah. Um, one of them's in New York City, another one's in Chicago, and they literally live in in a postage stamp. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, they're really into woodworking and really excited. One of them's actually. Um, really into Windsor chair making at this point and just seeing the, the, what shall I say? The kind of innovative ideas on how they set up their shop and how their workflow works. It's just really cool. I mean, talk about stripping everything down to the bare minimum and you have to be innovative in order to make it work in this like, you know, six foot by three foot space. Totally. It's just, it's kind of cool. It's always interesting to see that stuff. I don't want to do it personally, (laughs) but it's just really cool to watch that. Uh, And I mean, it's just this whole craft concept is just something, and we've talked about this in the past, that it's just something that's like naturally in most of us. 
And yep. we have that drive to do it. And if we are given even a small space, as long as that, that bug is there and you want to do it, you'll find a way to get it done. Uh, and hopefully you'll be able to get a bigger shop later on. But at least if uh, you want to get your feet wet, you know, these people don't wait. They don't make excuses. They just get in there and do it. Yeah, but almost you know, in the impression it's like, I'm under the impression that it's like somebody hasn't told them yet that you can't do it this way. Like the the, the trolls that everybody hasn't gotten to them yet. And they're (laughs) like, no, man, I'm just having fun. Yeah, that's really cool. But you can't do it that way. You can't do that. Uh, Yes, we can. I think if if both of you added a little bit more growl, volume, and intensity to your voices, you'd have a Tom Iovino speech. There you go. (laughs) A scary straight speech. It's just in us to do this. You got to go out and do it no matter what. (laughs) Now go. Yeah, folks at Woodworking in America enjoyed Tom's Tom's uh, delivery there at the um, online woodworkers little seminar that we did. Okay, so it, uh, right. sort of related Let's, to that. Um, moving on, we've got another guy who's making do with things. Um, this is sent in by Kyle, and it's actually it's it's kind of a fun little video because the guy who, um, for lack of a better term, stars in the video is a. Um, I can't remember if he's a Marine major or an Army major, but he's just, he's kind of, he reminds me of the um, the drill sergeant from Full Metal Jacket. He just <laughs> seems like he's a total badass yeah. and just very, very confident delivery. But he's a beekeeper who I guess started making his own, I guess they just call them bee boxes. And the professional or the, the commercially made ones have this little D handle on the end. And he wanted to figure out a way to do that. So he came up with essentially uh, a circular saw jig that positions a circular saw at an angle. And think about how you cut coves on a table saw by approaching the circular blade at an angle. Mm-hmm. Essentially, he's doing the same thing, but he's dropping it down at an angle, and he creates a cool little D-handle. And it's just one of those cool tips that, um, you know, I mean, I, I don't think there's anything unsafe about it at all, especially because he's got it kind of locked laterally in this jig. I think it's just a matter of kind of taking a light cut and, and deepening it up. In the video, it looks like he goes right to town with it at full depth, which <laughs> I think that so. scares yeah. me a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think I would try to make a couple of passes. Um, I guess it depends on the wood you're using too. But um, it's just one of those cool little things. You figure, how would I make that? And um, he came up with a really cool way to do it with a pretty simple jig. So it's another, as Mark said, it's another one of those cool ways of somebody that just gets it done and doesn't have to go out and get a big fancy tool to make it work. That's so. It. Um, let's step back one um, because I wanted to mention Matt Berger. I don't know if you guys remember him, but he used to work for Fine Woodworking. And yeah. yeah, he moved out to LA and he now has a shop that's dedicated to teaching people how to make skateboard decks. So this kind of goes with the previous story. Um, Oops, I skipped over that. You did. <laughs> I thought that was part of the other one. Never no, mind. no, no. It's uh, So it's skatemakers.com. And if you're in the LA area, it's definitely something you want to look into if you have an interest in skateboarding or making your own deck. Uh, looks pretty cool. So it's like he's doing seminars and, and classes and teaching people how to do it uh, in an area where they might not necessarily even think of themselves as craftspeople or woodworkers, but they're they're skateboarders and they have an interest in it. And that's the thing that pulls them into the craft. And uh, cool. yeah, that's pretty cool stuff. Very, very cool. Well, sweet. Well, hey, I'm going to spring us forward here. And this one was sent in by Danny and it's the wood database mm-hmm. at www wood-database.com I feel like for some reason I need to put the URL out there but anyways Danny as he points out it's lots of info of all types of well wood and he said the other cool really awesome thing is that they sell a awesome periodic table of wood poster ideal for any woodworker with a scientific background although I've never heard of such a person (laughs) that's Danny saying that I I know a few of us Uh, but uh, yeah two thirds of the show Exactly. Yeah, and then the the one the other remaining third is like the artsy fartsy one. Right. So, 
Uh, but anyway, so if you cause we get a lot of questions periodically, I don't know about you guys, but I periodically will get one like, "Hey, what's the strongest wood I could use for this?" or "What are the, what should I worry about it with such and such?" If you're looking for information like that, um, it sounds like this is the type of website that maybe you want to head out to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really good. I I go there quite often during the work week um, because they're really good about putting out data that's not like ultra scientific. Um, if you've seen, if you go to like the U.S. Forest Products Laboratory, their website gives like, you know, the force, you know, <laughs> kilonewtons for stress and bending strength and all this stuff. And they cover the design values that a lot of the engineers are looking for. This is just a little bit more, you know, it's relatively strong. <laughs> it's 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 <laughs> more defined in kind of paragraph format instead of, you know, 1.1, 1.21 Gigavolts, Gigawatts. in other words. Yeah, well, and it, it is definitely seems to be geared more toward the woodworker crowd, you know, who, right. who only wants that sort of top level information. Um, but if you do any search for any particular wood species, almost without fail, you'll find a wood database link on the first page of results. Um, so chances are, if you've searched for anything on wood species, you'll probably come across this. Um, this is definitely a resource that I, I know I've counted on this for years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. It's good. Sweet. All right, who's next? Um, let's see. We got another one called Bed in a Box that was sent in by Matt S. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether he was sent it in directly to Matt V because Matt's building a bed, but it's kind of cool. Um, it's basically just a, a, a stream of photos on Google Plus that uh, when I first clicked on it, I thought it was yet another tool chest yeah. post because yeah. <laughs> it looks a lot like some sort of tool chest at first, but um, it's it's kind of crazy. I mean, he takes pictures of kind of the process of this thing unfolding and what looks like a tool chest to me, frame and panel looking thing unfolds into like, you know, a full blown bed. And I can't tell there's no scale. I don't know if it's queen size or twin or maybe even says, but um, it's nuts. It, it like accordion folds out and like everything has its place. And it's just, it's, it's very cool. Although I can't imagine trying to lift and move that thing. Cause I imagine even when it's like broken down into the little chest thing, it's, Really, really dense. Yeah, there's a lot That's of gotta be a little hard to move around. Yeah, no doubt. I would love to see a Frank Howarth style video of this thing <laughs> unfolding yeah. and building itself. <laughs> totally. Just a little stop motion action. Uh, that I, would be really I showed that to Sam and her response was, When are we ever gonna use that? Keep <laughs> move on. That's true. That's true though. It is neat though. All right. Uh next one we have here is sent in by Jack. It's a butterfly stool posted on Fine Woodworking's website, and we'll put the link in the show notes, but just a very Cool-looking, I'm guessing, bent lamination-style design that just looks like a... Well, it's called a butterfly stool, but it kind of looks like flower petals with the wood choice that they have here for the face. Um, Just... what a complex arrangement of angles and curves, like all over the place. Nothing is in a flat sort of plane. Very, very cool design. And it looks like there's a little video there. I haven't actually watched the video. It's 20 minutes long, so I'm hoping it actually goes into detail on a build. That would be pretty cool. Yeah. Sweet. Well, hey, one more here to wrap this up. And uh, I, I just dropped this one in earlier. I don't know if you guys had a chance to see this, but the folks over at Minwax, yes, the finishing products, they're doing what they're referring to as they have the Do Good with Wood Award. Never. And essentially, this is an opportunity for say, a a DIY group or craft or hobby groups or maybe even a school, wood shop, class, clubs, guilds, whatever. Uh, If you have a project that you've been doing, anything that's going to kind of help out, you know, just the community in in large, they're looking for nominees to uh, possibly win an award from them. 
So uh, we'll have a link in there to get you over towards the information to find out exactly what's going on with it and what you can do. I know that there is a big old prize for this. In fact, I think it's a cash prize if I remember. Right. First prize. Uh, oops, I don't have it there. Wow, this is really. Oh, here we go. First prize, $5,000 cash prize, supply of Minwax products valued at $1,000, and a consultation from leading wood finishing expert Bruce Johnson. And then, of course, there are other prizes after that. So cool. if you want to check it out, submit a nomination or even view past winners to see what they did to win, definitely head over to this link and find out. It always always sounds pretty cool when it's like a, a, an opportunity to highlight something that people are doing that's good in the community versus screaming about graffiti on the wall like some other neighbors. <laughs> hey, do you guys remember Bruce Johnson's TV show that was on yes. for a short yes. period mm-hmm. of time? That was uh, – that was like, wasn't Woodworks on at the same time? You had Woodworks. That was like the golden age. I was just going to say, know, it was Walt the Norm. <laughs> we had Roy. We had Scott. We had Bruce. Even David Teal of Popular That's Woodworking right. yeah. had, a, had a little thing. Now I can't remember what it's called. It was uh, it was something with tools. It was all about new tools and tool reviews. But I, I Seriously. That was like, and I think it was all Saturday morning too. Yep. Because yes. you could like set the, well, there was no DVR back then. Back then we had to use VCRs. <laughs> um, you could just like set it up to record and you had like six hours every Saturday of woodworking stuff. Actually, some of us awesome. did have DVRs. They were called TiVos back then. And they were TiVo awesome. TiVo existed back then? I, wow. had a, I had a TiVo when I first moved to California. And that was well before I started woodworking. Yeah, um, well, I still have a it. cathode ray tube TV. So, oh my god, kind of tells you where we are. In oh there. my god! All right. So I almost feel like we, you know, as you as we're talking about this, it's like in the days before podcasting. Did podcasting destroy our Saturday mornings? <laughs> I think the internet destroyed our Saturday mornings. I think you're right. Fault. Just in I general, I need to actually listen to my YouTube commenters. That actually is my fault. Wow. Yeah. Um, Sorry, but I didn't mean to leave that one. I I meant that for Mark. (laughs) All right. So real quick, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, Audible is a sponsor of the show. We love Audible. So we're going to tell you about what we're reading lately, and I'll go first. I'm reading a book called Simplicity Parenting because I'm a parent and I'm simple. So... (laughs) <laughs> it's the best kind of parent to be as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, you know, and that's the thing. I, I have a tendency with all things in life to overthink them and to focus a little bit too much on the details. And, and sometimes when it comes to parenting, the more you step back, I think the, the better you do the job. Um, and, and that's exactly what this is. Uh, and it kind of, you know, the thing is, as gadget people and someone who like lives on devices, it's very hard to not transfer that to your toddler child who always wants to grab your iPhone or wants to play on your iPad. Um, and, and it's really trying to keep them away from that stuff as much as I reasonably can. Uh, so I need a little guidance with that. And a book like this actually helps me out quite a bit. So I, I definitely recommend that for new parents out there. Nice. Uh, as long as it's nothing about helicopter parenting. If that's the case, I'm going to have hmm. to shoot you out of the sky, buddy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. How about you, Matt? All right. Well, the one I just actually I just finished this up and I really enjoyed it was when I was coming back from woodworking in America. And it's the myths of creativity, the truth about how innovative companies and people generate ideas by David Burkus. And essentially, he just goes into the whole thing about debunking the 10 common myths, which include like the Eureka myth, the lone creator myth, the incentive myth and the brainstorming myth. All of these stories you hear out there on the Internet and business blogs or whatever, just in general, when it comes to something really, really innovative, they always make it sound like it was this spectacular one-off thing oftentimes and what he ends up talking about in this book is some of the biggest innovative things that have ever happened in human history especially in the past say 100 years or so uh the myths behind them are probably 
way bigger than the actual truth. And it's really kind of interesting because for anybody that is looking to be more creative or is convinced that they're just not creative and they'll never be creative and they'll never invent the new best, next, next best thing or just whatever, this is kind of a, a neat listen to to finally discover, wait a minute, a lot of these things were kind of from semi-ordinary people that just maybe – worked a little bit differently mm-hmm. and came up with some really cool stuff. So I really enjoyed listening to all these different things and suddenly thinking, wait a minute, I could do that. Nice. Well, you guys are like serious and like all self-helpish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Me driving back from woodworking in America. I listened to Ender's game for like the 50th time in preparation <laughs> for the upcoming movie. Um, and then I went Stephen King and I'm listening to Joyland right now. And oh. I got to say, it's awesome. It's Ooh. like, classic Stephen King, incredibly compelling, draws you in in a second and you can't quite figure out why you're spooked out, but you are spooked out and it's just awesome. It's fantastic. Very cool. All right. So just a quick reminder, audiblepodcast.com slash woodtalk is where you could go to get your free audio book, sign up for that trial and uh, like us, you will be hooked on this stuff and you can also help yourself out by reading some books or uh, escape into some imaginary far off land like Shannon likes to do. That's me. Shannon, come back to reality. Right. Okay, so let's move into the poll of the week by our buddy Tom Iavino, who says, Tell us about your shop now! Like that. (laughs) Run out, run out, run out! Yeah. uh, So the poll is, in case you didn't understand that, tell us about your shop. And essentially, we're just looking to find out what size or or whether or not your shop is like in a shared space. Because realistically... I would say the vast majority of people listening to this show probably have to share their shop with either, you know, stuff from the house, holiday decorations, kids' toys, bikes, exercise equipment, lawn maintenance tools and whatnot. Uh, so we're just curious well, what kind of uh, what kind of shops people have out there. So uh, 47% said, okay, let me clarify his question. Where is it? What's wrong with this thing? Hold on. <laughs> I try. I, I kind of changed the, the wording a little bit on it to make our posts unique. Okay, here you go. Is your shop a totally dedicated space is what he asked. Uh, 47% said, you betcha. It's primarily woodworking. 40% says that it shares just a few functions. And 9.8% said, I work wherever I can get the space. And then uh, 2% say some other arrangement, which I'm guessing... <laughs> that uh, sounds shady. Yeah, we have some... We've got the back of a car in the corner of 9th and 45th. I'm wondering if some other might be like those community shops uh, or renting shop space or something. I hope so. Otherwise, there may be some relationships mm. and trouble out there. Sounds fishy. Mm. All right, let's move into the kickback. What's all? All right. We definitely had a whole bunch of this. And this first one comes in from Dell. And Dell is saying, just a little feedback on Wood Talk number 153 regarding building order, particularly use of cut lists. Mm -hmm. I use cut lists on almost every project. It's very handy when it comes to cutting large sheets of 4 by 8 I'm assuming plywood, uh, helping me to reduce the (laughs) number of sheets I might buy by providing me with the best orientation and cut. I also use it for smaller pieces, again, in an attempt to reduce waste. And another minor disagreement, I also cut all my pieces advanced because I cut them slightly large in preparation for the final build. This may seem weird, but though I use a cut list to reduce waste, every cut list also provides me room for some waste. I then cut a group, say side rail, side rail and styles, etc., of pieces down to their final orientation before my dry fit. Mm. So I have a feeling that maybe, I I know myself, maybe I misrepresented my actual opinion on this one in that show, but I I, I do have cut lists, but I don't rely on them. Like, I don't live to them 100%. Like, you know, I I will alter them if necessary, but I, I do something 
somewhat similar there, Dell. I mean, especially if I'm working with plywood sheets. Mm-hmm. I know myself, I do like to lay them out and get a feel for how they're going to fit on a sheet. So I, I also don't buy suddenly like eight sheets when it turns out I needed one and a half which has happened. Uh, and then the same thing with my rough lumber. I will kind of play around with that, trying to get a feel for for smaller pieces. But I, I don't live and breathe the cut list. But it is something that's that's sitting there as a as an overall reference, I'll say. Yeah, yeah. and I, I totally agree. I still have a cut list. I still use the cut list, but I don't depend on the cut list in that sense. And I think if I'm working with plywood, I think you're safer in that situation to cut those parts ahead of time and keep them just slightly oversized until you're ready to cut them to size. Uh, When you're talking about solid wood, I think that's when we all can sort of say, well, you know, cutting them too soon could potentially cause you problems in in, uh, the order of operations if things decide to move on you. Uh, That that ply is going to be a little more stable. Well, and one of the things I know we edited out for space, but he said, I do build most of my projects kind of off of Shopsmith, Woodsmith, and Wood Magazine. Yeah. And kudos to those guys. They do a great job of, I mean, you, you think about it, they have to, because mm-hmm. if they put the the number in wrong, how many letters and emails and angry people do they get saying, you gave me the wrong dimension? So totally. usually, and it's been a while since I've looked at Woodsmith, but they do a lot of, you know, plywood in their projects. And right. I think that it makes perfect sense. Cool. All right, you're up, Shannon. Ooh, uh, we have this from uh, Aaron, who was inspired from Wood Talk number 152. Which, that happens. That last time? I don't remember when that was. <laughs> Two what episodes. number are we on? We're on 155. Wow, okay. Uh, I feel like we should have some sort of drum roll here, because he has the top 10 woodworking pickup lines. <laughs> Letterman oh! style. <laughs> so, at number 10, do you turn? Number nine, so, have you tried high glue? <laughs> Trying my best, like, seductive voice here. I like it. I like it. Keep going. Number eight. Is that a block chisel in your pocket? Block chisel. What's a block chisel? Is that a block chisel in your pocket, or are you just happy to see me? Maybe you meant block plane? Maybe. I I hope so, man. Block chisel is more mysterious, though, so it's probably (laughs) 67% of the time block chisel works every time. There you go. Number seven. Chisel here often. But I'm bummed. Number six. Do you prefer rip or cross cuts? Number five. Do you wipe your tool handles with true oil or boiled linseed? <laughs> That's just nasty. <laughs> Number four. These are going how downhill, do you by the way. Stabilize softwood. Yeah. Number three. So you like hand tools. Number two. Do you clock your screws? And the number one reason, or number one reason, I've sounded like Letterman now. The number one woodworking pickup line is what's your favorite hardwood? Whoa. 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 Easy there, Shannon. I'm feeling, you know, a little, I'm getting a little flush right now. Those were terrible. All right. Yeah. You know what's, what's really bad is the fact <laughs> that these would totally work, but the problem is they're not going to work on anybody that was at our meet and greet, or at least nobody, I want to, no offense, guys. I loved all of you. You were fantastic for showing up, but <laughs> I'm happy to go back to my hotel room by myself. There you go. <laughs> well, we'll, uh, next, next Woodworking America, we'll, um, we'll get Mary May, Matt. And put you two in a room, and you can try them out. <laughs> see, see how that goes for you. Okay, let's uh, move on to the next one before Matt gets in more trouble. Uh, <laughs> this one's from Clint. He says, Mark was talking about having found Joe Woodworker's website. That's uh, veneersupplies.com. Great folks and great wood. If you guys want to go absolutely crazy over what I can only call wood porn, check out certainlywood.com. 
Uh, we've been purchasing veneer from Jim and Don for a number of years, and to show you just how well they know their customers, they often send us sample shots of new veneers when they come in. And of course, we just have to see more, just like the porn industry. And so we often just roll over and tell them to send us a few hundred feet of the latest eye candy. And I went to this website, and holy smokes. Really, really good stuff. And I had to get off the site quickly because I've already done some damage on uh, uh, veneersupplies.com. I don't need to do any more over there, but I have bookmarked that site and will definitely be going back there. I wonder if a, a new thing, just like some of these sites that I've never, ever, ever been to. Of course. But if they had like a monthly subscription where you had to like, you know, get a hold of them somehow to end it. Otherwise, they're just going to keep sending you the stuff every single month. You're like, I swear, I don't know how I got this. Somebody must have got hold of my credit card. <laughs> right. It's the old Columbia House business model. It's worked for years. There you there go. You go. They, they should definitely get that going again. Of course, I'm going to avoid it like crazy. Uh, but anyway, so hey, let's move on to this last one. This came in from Alan. And Alan says, with regards to the first three hand tools, a power tool enthusiast, might want to try out i would recommend a ryoba ryoba yeah not, not, sure a ryoba yeah. they ryoba. carry that at home depot right yeah it has interchangeable batteries yeah uh, it covers both rip and cross Cute cuts green. and the pull stroke combined with the thin curve makes it very user-friendly for a beginner mm. they're also cheap i've gotten good results with an 18 dollars bear saw from a box store and i have to admit i i i totally my very first like saw handsaw kind of a thing was exactly that um a uh, very inexpensive blue handled uh, in fact i probably have it around someplace i think i, I use it now for trimming trees out in the yard because it still works really good mm-hmm. but it's definitely it, it got me interested cool that's i handsaw. agree i had a dozuki that was my first handsaw oh, dozuki yeah. all right let's go into God voicemail <laughs> let's go into our voicemail got one here from chris with a k Anytime now. Mark with a C, Matt with two T's, and Shannon with three N's. This is Chris with a K, calling from New Jersey. Uh, I had a question primarily for Mark. Mark, I know when you were doing the gadget station build a while back, quite a while back, uh, you ran into some trouble at the router table where you actually had a minor injury uh, because the piece jammed into your hand as a result, I guess, of running into some end grain as you were doing an inside curve. And I wondered if maybe you could explain that a little bit more as to what went wrong and how it caused that kind of a kickback effect. Uh, What I'm getting ready to do is, uh, as part of building a music stand, the center stem, I want to build a nice inside curve on that, a long inside curve, and I don't want to run into any of that end grain problem that you had or, you know, risk a, a potential kickback kind of situation. So I uh, wanted to get some details on that. At one point you had said if you had flipped the piece over, that would have been the smarter way to go about it. Uh, so if you could explain that a little bit more. And then any thoughts on handling the inside curve the safest way? Should I, for instance, go halfway through the curve and then pull the piece out, flip it over, and run it with a bearing on the opposite side of the, uh, the router bit, or what would be the best way to go about it. Again, it's a pretty gradual curve. Maybe that won't cause too many problems, but wanted to get your thoughts on that. Thanks, guys, for a great show. Love listening to it, and uh, look forward to many more. Bye. All right. Thanks for that, Chris, with a K. And essentially what we're talking about here is when you've got 
Think of a board with grain that goes from one end to the other, like it usually does. And if you cut, <laughs> you cut a little curve in there and you're running that over a router bit for a template routing operation, for half of the cut, you are the grain is working with you. You're going with the grain and it's a nice clean cut. But as you start going what would effectively be uphill, you're going against the grain. And because of the directionality of the bit and the orientation of the grain, you have a much greater tendency for that bit to catch. And if it does, in the way that you can just slam a wedge down a log and split it, as Shannon likes to do for fun, um, you essentially are going to cause a split there. And you can have some really serious issues with that. Now, it's very dependent on the wood, the wood's density, how easy it is to cut, the sharpness of the, the router bit. Um, so these are all things you could stack in your favor by using wood that's a little bit easier to mill, uh, using spiral blades that have a tendency to cut cleaner and don't necessarily um, catch as often. Um, so to address that, that's those are some of the things that I would start off with. You would also want to make sure you're only trimming a very small amount of material. So if you're cutting to a line, make sure you're about no more than a sixteenth away from that line when you make that cut so that the router bit just doesn't have to remove as much stock. And if all those things are in place, a lot of times you can get away with with going over that uphill section. You just want to, you kind of want to approach it slowly and judge. This is one of those things that experience really helps with because as you start to cut, you may start to feel it and you go, oh, okay, I'm going to back off on this. This is getting a little bit too, you know, you start to feel it uh, jump on you a little bit and you could back off. Uh, he suggested exactly what you might want to do. You could switch to a different bit where the bearing is on the other side, either go from a flush trim to a pattern or vice versa. And then this way you can kind of approach the workpiece, flip it over and approach it the other way. So that now that section that was uphill is now downhill and you can clean that off as well. Um, this is definitely something that lends itself really well to video. And I maybe I will put this on my list of uh, things to do for Wood Talk video clips for our future <laughs> YouTube stuff. <laughs> Uh, but that's about it. Um, do you guys have anything to add to that or shall we just jump into email? No, let's move right on to email. I've, I've got nothing. It sounds What's exactly a router? Like- <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's, um, yeah, we're going to go pretty quickly through this cause I'm a little bit short on time tonight. Uh, so we'll jump right into the email. First one is from Jake. He says, I work at a furniture company and the boss's favorite tool seems to be a belt sander. Now in college, I was a scenic carpenter and I've only ever used a belt sander for finessing a ramp lid and smoothing large curves on platforms. My boss doesn't have a jointer in the shop, so we end up trying to use the belt sander to straighten the edge of boards. And is this a normal practice? Do you all have a belt sander in your shop and what do you use them for? I don't know that I would... Well, here's the thing. I don't know what's normal because I haven't seen everybody's shops. People do some crazy things to get the job done and it works for them. So I would never uh, criticize it on that level. For me personally, I don't use um, a belt sander just because it's a very difficult tool to control without a lot of practice with it. And when something goes wrong with a belt sander, it goes wrong in a hurry and it goes wrong in dramatic fashion. So I kind of stay away from it personally. But they, they do have their place in the right hands. They can actually be a pretty good flattening tool. Um, I don't know that I would see it so much as a fine woodworking tool just because it is so um, tricky to control. I mean, considering the fact that they have drag races based around bandsaw or uh, belt (laughs) Belt sanders, it it definitely is not something I think of as finesse work. Yeah. Yeah. So so again, I don't know if if I can call it normal to have it, but I don't see, I mean, again, people do some crazy things like these, the people in their New York apartment that are just getting things done. Sometimes you just figure out a way you got a tool that does the job. You get it done. You don't care what other shops are doing because this works for you. So yeah, I've seen plenty of times when people throw it on the side and go from there, just clamp it in and treat it like you would like an oscillating spindle sander kind of a thing. So exactly. Sweet. All right, Shannon, you're up. 
Uh, this one comes in from Jeffrey. <clears throat> he says, I have a two cherries card scraper and a crown tools burnisher, and I have been unable to get a burr on the scraper. I've watched numerous videos and tried my best, but to no avail. My favorite video is of William Ng on Mark's website. Uh, is there any help you can offer? I agree. That's a good video. Mm-hmm. Um, what I have found, uh, I, I get I get a lot of emails like this from hand tool school folks. What I find is people tend to make that burr too extreme. So you may actually be getting that burr, but you're not able to get it to cut because in order to get it to cut, you have to lean the card scraper so far forward that you're banging your knuckles on the wood. Mm-hmm. Um, what you really want is that burr almost to come off at almost to be perpendicular to the plane of the card scraper itself. So you really put very little angle when you roll that burnisher. Second of all, you don't have to like crank down on that burnisher. It's a real light touch and you can roll that burr over really easily. What you should want to do is when you put the card scraper down so that it's 90 degrees to the surface of the wood, push it forward at 90 degrees and you'll feel it kind of, you know, catch a little bit. Uh, if you don't feel it catching there, then you probably need to go back and refile that edge to make sure you've got a good 90-degree edge. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. If you're not feeling that little bit of grab, that little bit of resistance at 90 degrees, you haven't filed the edge well enough. You don't have a clean enough edge. Then if you've got that, you want to lean it forward ever so slightly, you know, a, a gnat's wings width towards the wood, and just keep doing that until you finally feel it really catch. And if you've rolled that burr appropriately, you've got plenty of clearance between your knuckles and the wood. We talk about knuckle draggers. This is not one of those instances with hand tools. <laughs> um, what you end up with, there are actually Veritas makes a little burnisher thing that allows you to dial in the angle and it changes a little rod that will actually burnish it for you. And I think you can dial in like 25 degrees on that thing. If you put a 25 degree bevel on your or 25 degrees on the burr, you don't have clearance to be able to actually work you know, work that at the proper angle. So you're going to end up getting dust because the cutter is not cutting at the appropriate angle. Um, so that was what I would recommend. Uh, and it's also a good diagnostic check. If you're not getting it at 90 degrees, you need to refile. And if you're not getting it to catch within, you know, a degree or two of rotation, you need to re-roll that burr. So um, the only other thing I would say is a lot of times it helps to burnish the burr out Lay the card scraper flat on your bench or surface or whatever like that and roll the burr straight out from there. So you're almost like drawing the metal out um, parallel to the actual card scraper. And then you can roll it from there. If you draw it out a little bit, you re- it requires even less pressure to do it. So kind of, again, this is one of those things that's harder to talk about than it is to show. Yeah. Um, but I'd be willing to bet that you're getting a burr, you're just getting it at too extreme of an angle and you're not able to engage that angle. Sounds good. Sweet. Hey, well, this next question comes in from John, and John says, I just ordered some water stones, and I'm wanting to build a sharpening station, but what I was wondering is if you can keep the stones in water ready to use or if that will mess them up. Uh, You can keep them in water, but here's what you need to do is it's only the coarse and medium grits that really – you could just leave in the water permanently. Uh, the, the finer grits, definitely only put those in just prior to using them. Uh, most of the manufacturers, like I was just over at Woodcraft, I was looking at their care and use of water stones little statement that they have. I know uh, Lee Valley also has one uh, that you can click on. It'll take you over to that information. The big thing for me, and by let me actually, I should define this a little bit more. Coarse and medium stones, anything under a thousand grit 
is uh, something that I would consider to be uh, like the thousand, maybe fifteen hundred is kind of a medium grit, uh, and then obviously eight hundred or so is, is the coarse. Those ones are perfectly fine to leave in the water permanently, with one big exception here. If it's going to be cold, like where the water could potentially freeze, you don't want to do that unless you want to come back and have a whole bunch of tiny little stones potentially from them shattering, considering they're filled with water. And when the ice freezes, obviously it's going to break those apart. Mm -hmm. So uh, if anything, just simply bring your stones in where it's nice and warm. But yes, leave the coarse and medium ones in the stone in, in the water. They're ready to go. The finer grits, just soak those prior uh, anywhere from like 10 minutes or so, and you should be all set to go. And that cool. is pretty much all you need to do with those. Cool beans. All right. Got a question here from the dude. That's dude. Cool. Uh, dude. Does, does he drink white Russians? That's what I want to know. <laughs> all right. Uh, he says, I'm building a hall table using flame birch for the legs. In the top, I'm going to make an inlay in the shape of Texas. That's about eight inches by eight inches using inlace. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, I thought I would use Baltic birch ply since it's more stable than solid wood. My question is, will it be stable enough? And if the flame birch and Baltic birch will look similar once they're finished, I know that the Baltic won't have the figure, but will the color match? One last thing. Have any of you used or know anything about inlays? If so, any advice? Thanks for the help and all you do. All right. So let's talk about that inlay stuff real quick. Uh, really, I haven't used it before. The concept isn't unfamiliar to me, though. It's basically like, you know, those pen blanks that they make out of a plastic material and they just look marbled and, and all kinds of crazy colors. This yep. looks like that material ground up. And essentially, you mix it with a resin and you pour it into some sort of a routed design to essentially do the do an inlay. And you don't actually have to create the piece that goes into the inlay. You're pouring a solution uh, into the recess and you get this perfect shape because you only had to cut one shape, uh, which is pretty, pretty slick. So um, that's what he's doing. I don't see any reason why he'd have any stability issues using that uh, with the Baltic birch. But Baltic birch, just in my experience with it, is not really a show surface. Uh, A lot of times there's a lot of flaws. There's a lot of little patches that are done. There's thin areas where you could almost see the underlying layers. It's just not the prettiest stuff. And it's super rough when you first get it. So you've got to do a pretty substantial sanding to get that thing to the point that you would call it furniture surface, you know, something up to 220 or 180 grit. So I don't want to say it doesn't exist, but I'm pretty sure there is no such thing as A face Baltic birch. I think by its very nature, it's B C faced. Yeah, so so my recommendation is if you need to go this route and you still want to do the plywood, um, maybe, Shannon, you can uh, tell me if it's difficult to find just a standard cabinet-grade birch-faced plywood that is not Baltic birch. No, no. I mean, most shops, well, actually, that's not Baltic birch. Yeah, I don't want Baltic birch. I just want, like, uh, A1 uh, plywood. I'm going to make some cabinets, and I just want actual show surfaces with birch as my show face. I think it's going to be kind of hard, actually, because that ends up being a lot of times the substrate, and then there's some sort of decorative veneer, because birch is really not that interesting. That's why flame birch is popular, because birch is not very interesting. Right. Um, I think for in a similar color color palette, he'd be better off with something like maple, frankly. Yeah, I mean, maple is going to be... In that situation, especially when the legs are calling your attention visually, he might be able to get away with it and it shouldn't be too much of a problem. Um, But yeah, ultimately, I would stay away from the Baltic birch. And here's the thing. I don't know. I mean, if you're doing the thing with Texas 8x8, I'd imagine that resin has some flexibility to it. I was thinking about, I haven't used it 
in specifically in lace, but I've used other composite type pen blanks. Uh-huh. And the stuff is not completely brittle, super, super hard, rigid stuff. There is, I mean, it essentially is a resin that's been poured into that blank shape yeah, and yeah. has, you know, cured. So I, I would think that there's some flexibility built in there. Yeah. So, I mean, I might, I might steer toward the solid wood just to get that, that perfect match. But if you're really inclined to do it, uh, like Shannon says, maple might be a good substitute for you. If you can't find a, a such being as a, you know, four by eight sheet of good quality, um, a nice faced birch plywood. Right. Well, here's the other thing, unless he's making it really deep, like the, the, Texas inlay. I don't know if he's doing like the whole solid inlay or if he's just doing like a line drawing of Texas. I can't imagine he's going to do it like a half an inch deep. Yeah. Um, you know, you're talking eighth of an inch, maybe quarter of an inch at most, mm-hmm. in which case even, even then it's going to be even more flexible. Right. Exactly. All right. Uh, b- oh, b- what? what? Before what? we go on what? real quick, I just want to make one additional comment. Uh, you guys had an amazing stuff about the inlays. Mm. But as I was putting in the links that I had mentioned for the Waterstone things, Lee Valley makes a very good point about if it's natural Waterstones, and this is regarding John's question about the Waterstones, natural Japanese Waterstones should not be kept in the water long term. It's the, uh, the man-made ones that are perfectly fine, coarse and medium. But the natural Japanese stones, they're saying just drop them in as needed, then take them back out. Well, good, because then you just uh, headed off some kickback for next week. Exactly. I suddenly heard all this (laughs) screaming in my head, and I'm like, no, stop. Well, and let's also get one more kickback out of the way. Uh, If you do something like the Shapton ceramic stones, one of the great things is you just mist them and go. You don't have to pre-soak them, which is one of the things I love. (laughs) Number number one selling uh, benefit for me. That's why I I don't want to soak nothing. Exactly. Anyway, we've got a question from Bob. He says, I have a question about Holly. She's very pretty. Mm, she is. She's one of my favorite playmates. Funny, there's a question mark at the end of I have a question about Holly. <laughs> um, I want to make my own inlay stringing. Is the species that grows in Maryland, Virginia, Pennsylvania area the same as what you buy from retailers that sell string inlay? What's the best way to store it? How long before it's too dry to use? All right. Yes, it is the same species. There are a lot of different species of holly, but Ilex opaca is, yeah, that's right. I just threw Latin out there. That's the one that you primarily see, and that is Ohio River Valley, Mid-Atlantic is where most of it comes from. Second of all, is there ever a situation where wood is too dry to use? I don't know. Uh, if it Maybe. was, I would find out about it. If if it's like 0%, then, you know, it's just a matter of recognizing that that wood is going to take on moisture at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's a mis- an issue of being too dry. Maybe what he's asking is, is, is it's a problem bef- if it's too wet. And that's the biggest issue with holly. First of all, holly fr- is best sawn uh, felled in the winter when the sap isn't rising. Um, holly will turn blue and gray very, very quickly if there is sap in there. And I'm not exactly sure whether it's mineral or whether it's fungus. A lot of people say fungus, but it is really prone to losing that white color we want very quickly. Most people, if you fell a tree in the summer, you want to get it sawn into boards and thrown in the kiln and drying the same day, or it will turn blue and streaky and all kinds of crazy stuff. If you fell it in the winter when the sap isn't rising, you usually have about three to four days to get it in the kiln. And that's what we're trying to do is get it dry fast so that that doesn't happen. So here's the problem. People try to do that in order to get that beautiful white stuff we want, but you get a lot of waste from holly. Holly checks pretty bad. It moves a lot. It's really 
very prone to kiln defects. So it's very rare to find large pieces of holly because, frankly, what are people buying it for? They're buying it for string inlay, small applications. So you, you find a lot of small pieces of holly. That's because the bigger board it came out of checked all the hell and looked terrible. It's full of all kinds of defects. So they saw out the beautiful white stuff and sell it to you in small quantities. Mm. It's just because holly is a very, very difficult species to work with. So if you've got a person that you're buying it from, you want to make sure that they know what they're doing, that they sawed it and threw it in the kiln as fast as possible. Um, and if they say, oh, well, we felled it in winter, we're fine. Literally, you, most of the guys I know that saw this, they'll tell you that you have at most four days max, even if you sawed it in the winter before it starts to turn blue on you. It's a really, really temperamental wood. Good to know. Interesting. Sweet. Wait, last question here. And this came in from Gene. And Gene was asking, I'm a new woodworker and have a garage shop with 0.0 dust collection. So I think he's saying he has none. 0.0.0. I always wear a dust mask when cutting or sanding. I'm building a boat and also use a lot of epoxy and fiberglass products. Can you touch on which mask I should be using? I tend to buy the mask offered at my local home store, and they're usually just one step up from the one-and-done models. I'm sure I should invest in a better, safer mask very soon, but I'm not sure what to get. Now, I don't do a lot of boat building, but I do know somebody who does, and that's Andy Miller over at Boatworks today. And so I, I asked him if he could maybe comment on this, considering he mentioned fiberglass and boats. And so Andy's response was, with the materials he's working with, I'd recommend a half-face unit with pre-filters and organic vapor, the OV cartridges. Personally, I use the 3M7500, which is a very comfortable mask, has replaceable filters and OV cartridges, and is easy to breathe through. The next step down is the 3M6000 unit, which is essentially the same, but doesn't breathe quite as easy. And I think breathing is probably something that's important regardless of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, once you start looking at lesser units, they're more or less disposables. For most people that are into woodworking and finishes that do not coat, that do not contain isocyanates, the 3M5000 unit is really all they need. Although the filters are not replaceable under this kind of use, they will last a very long time, mostly as a particulate mask. It's when you step into the realm of toxic finishes that you need to look at more robust OV filters. On projects where exposure to these chemicals is going to be ongoing, I'll typically use a mask long enough to replace the filters two times, then discard the whole unit and replace with new. Reason being is that the mask itself, the silicone part that fits on the face, will eventually absorb the vapors. And when this happens, there's no way to clean it. I'd rather spend the money and get a new one than have the tainted mask against my skin. Mm. My recommendation for what it's worth is either the 6000 or the 7500 model. If you're going to be working with any two-part finishes, isocyanate or not, and the 5000 model, if it's primarily going to be used as a fancy particulate mask, which is still way better than any of those paper throwaway deals, they're basically junk as far as Andy's concerned. Cool. So well, thanks thank you, for Andy, that, for sending that in. That's awesome. Well, Andy, that was much more thorough than any of us would have ever come up with. That's true. Yeah, I'd have been like, I just want one that goes over my beard. <laughs> it's got to look purdy. <laughs> right. Purdy. All right, let's go to our iTunes reviews. If you want to leave us a review on iTunes, just look us up in the iTunes store, click on ratings and reviews, and you can ask Matt if he can send you one of those private videos of him twerking. <laughs> oh, oh, as soon as I uh, get back from the chiropractor, I'd be more than happy to do that. <laughs> hey, yo. All right, we'd like to thank Sawdust Maker. Halburn, App Girl App, and Chris with a K. I think that's the guy who sent us a voicemail earlier. 
uh, who had this this day. Awesome and embarrassing. He says, imagine the looks I get on the New York subway when I suddenly burst out laughing with these guys. Believe me, it has happened. Thank goodness I haven't tried to explain myself. Uh, Really, it was just Shannon making fun of his hardwood. That would not go over well. These guys are not only entertaining, but amazingly informative as well. Mark has a knack for clear explanation. Matt makes you want to go into your shop and learn, learn, learn. And Shannon is an encyclopedia of all things wood and hand tools. Great guys, great podcast, and great fun. Well, thank you so much for that, Chris. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Thank you. That's right. All right. Uh, you know, today's show is sponsored by Festool at FestoolUSA.com and Audible. And you could go get that free audiobook at audiblepodcast.com slash woodtalk. And I uh, should mention our recurring donors, Andrew N., thank you so much, and everybody else who does a recurring donation or a one-time donation, we appreciate that. If you go to woodtalkshow.com, look in the left-hand column, you'll see some links where you could help out, and we always appreciate the support. And Matt, how about you give them that contact info, and we'll get out of here. All right, folks. Hey, you have a comment, a question, or a topic suggestion. There's several different ways you can contact us. You can just reach out and touch us. Just like last week, we were able to reach out and touch one another. In a hotel room, just mm. the three of us late at night after the bar. That's... Anyways, so you can leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username <laughs> is Woodtalk Online. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com or leave us a comment on our Woodtalk Facebook page. And if you're looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or say some of them previous episodes that we might have done in the past, you're mm-hmm. going to find those over at woodtalkshow.com. And we look forward to hearing from all of you. We show sure do. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We will catch you next time. See ya. ya. This podcast is part of the Frog Pants Studios Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there. 